You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, first off, uh, happy Mother's Day, right? Whether you be a biological mother, a stepmother, an adoptive mother, a spiritual mother, right? You may not have any children of your own, but you definitely help us with the children here in this church. Uh, especially if you're a member. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all of you, and may God bless you. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 today. Uh, We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this evening what we're coming to is Jesus' first words in this Gospel. Uh, And these two verses make up one sentence, and it's a fairly short sentence, but it's one full of weight and full of significance. But a question to begin. What is Jesus' message? What is Jesus' message? What did he come to teach people? Right, the Bible tells us that Jesus came preaching the gospel. That Jesus came preaching the good news. So what is it that he preached then? Right, and you'll hear a lot of different answers from a lot of different people with regards to this question, uh, one, of the fir- one of the first answers you'll hear from people, what is Jesus' message? You'll hear that Jesus came to tell us that God is love and that is all he is. And that's false. The Bible indeed does tell us that God is love. John tells us that in 1 John. But the Bible tells us all over the place that God is a holy God who hates sin and who is full of just and righteous wrath against unrepentant sinners who reject his son and refuse to enter the kingdom by him. Another thing you'll hear, uh, what is Jesus' message? Well, Jesus came to tell us that we're all God's children. Right? You've heard that. No matter what your creed or what your confession is, that we're all God's children. That's false. Jesus himself says that apart from him, all of us stand condemned by God because we love our sin and we hate righteousness. You can read where Jesus says that in John chapter 3. Other people will tell you that Jesus came to proclaim that God's favor has come upon us And because of that, God wants us all to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. You'll see a lot of that trash on TBN and other television stations that are quote-unquote Christian. And that's false. Jesus tells us straight up, in this world you will have tribulations. And in this world you will be persecuted for his namesake. He tells us you will suffer, especially if you're one of his people. And my final example, people will tell you that Jesus came to teach and show us a better way to live. Right, that Jesus came to tell us how to make the world a better place. And that's partially true. Jesus does indeed tell us the right way to live, but here's the thing. Before Christ came, we had the law already, didn't we? We had the Old Testament law of God that tells us how God expects us to live. And if everyone would walk in obedience to the Old Testament law, the world would be a utopia. But here's the thing. Law isn't good news. Just knowing the commands of God is not good news. Why? Because the law shows us that we are sinners because we don't obey the law perfectly. And the law also tells us that sinners deserve punishment from God. So if Jesus just came to tell us how to live, that's a damning message, not a message of good news. So what is the message that Jesus preached? What is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed? Well, what if I told you? That God so much wanted us to know the answer to that question that he directly answered it for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It's almost like I've lined this introduction up to match the passage of Scripture we're studying. Um, 
That was a joke. Come on, guys. Um, God wants us to know exactly what it was that his son, the Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God, preached to people. He wants us to know. Now, there are many false gospels out there. Right? There, there are many distortions of biblical truth. There are many false Christs being preached. There are many messages being proclaimed as the gospel that aren't actually the gospel. And scripture is very clear that we must be faithful to the true gospel. And indeed, Paul tells us in Galatians, there is no other gospel. There is only one gospel. And everything else is a bastardization of biblical truth that cannot save and is unfaithful to God. And the best way for us to keep from false gospels is to be very well acquainted with the true one. I'll give you, I'll give you an illustration for this. Um, I stole this from someone. Yeah, it's a guy who's dead, so I'm sure he won't mind. Um, a, a man was once friends with a bank manager, and he was fascinated with counterfeit money. And the, friend, or the, the man asked his friend, the bank manager, how do your tellers determine counterfeit money from the real thing? And the manager told him, well, every year or two, we send them off to a mint so they can be trained to spot fakes. And the friend said, oh, that's super interesting. So they go off for a week and they just study counterfeit money and how people make all these counterfeit bills. And the bank manager said, no. Why would you think that they go off and study counterfeit money? That doesn't make any sense. Why, why would they do that? What they do is they spend a week studying real money and handling real money and paying close attention to all of the details of the genuine article. And then after spending time handling the real thing, they can spot a fake from miles away. The same is true for us. If we spend time looking at the biblical gospel, if we spend time looking at the message that Jesus preached, we won't fall prey to false gospels. Not only that, but if we study what Jesus preached, then we'll know just what we ought to preach to a world that needs Jesus. We'll know the true gospel message that brings sinners into the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and look at this text and see what exactly it was that the Lord Jesus preached. And in doing so, may we be reminded what it is that we are to believe and also what it is that we are to proclaim to others. It's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, please speak to us through your word. Open our minds and our hearts by your spirit to receive by faith what the scriptures tell us. Help us to truly hear the words of our Lord Jesus, and please grant us hearts to obey his commandment to repent and believe the gospel. Please graciously grant us understanding so that you would be glorified in the lives of your people and in the salvation of sinners. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so right off the bat, our text tells us that John the Baptist has been arrested, and so Jesus begins his public ministry. Now, there's much for us to say about John the Baptist's arrest and his later execution, but we're not going to deal with that this evening for the sake of time. We're going to deal with that whenever we get to... Mark chapter 6, where Mark tells us what happened to John and gives us some detail. Um, but John has been arrested. He is in prison. His public ministry is now over. 
John's never going to have a public ministry again. This means, and what's relevant for us to know about that, and why I think Mark records that here in chapter 1 of his gospel, is that all the focus is now on Jesus. Right? John preached, and then Jesus came and was baptized by John, and now John fades off. Right? The focus is on Jesus, the one who John says is greater than him. The one that John preached about saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus, the one of whom John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Right? He must become preeminent. I must dissolve into nothing. So Jesus now takes center stage in this gospel and the focus never comes off of him. Right? Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming Right? You, that could legitimately be translated preaching. Right? Jesus was a preacher. He was, he was more than that. Right? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He wasn't just another prophet like Islam will tell you. Right? That's blasphemy. Jesus was more than just a preacher. He was more than just a prophet. But we can't forget that he indeed was a preacher. And he was the greatest preacher who ever lived. And he came proclaiming the gospel of God. And I just want to make a quick note of application. This is not the whole point of my sermon, but I, I can't not say it. Jesus was a preacher. And if we are his people, we likewise must be preachers in some sense. As I'm sure Pastor Robbie said last week when he was preaching out of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit empowers us that we might go and tell others who Jesus is, that, that he might empower us that we would go tell people the gospel. We must all be preachers in some sense. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to be a pulpit preacher like what I'm doing right now, but we must all be evangelists right? Heralds of the good news, right? We must all tell everyone, right? Just like Jesus was. To quote Charles Spurgeon, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. He also said, do you care nothing about the salvation of your neighbor? Then you should question your own, right? So if Christ was a preacher and he saved us that we might become like him, then we likewise in some capacity must become preachers. So I hope that sinks in and, and, and gives you guys something to think about this week. We must proclaim the gospel. But what was he preaching? The text tells us he was preaching the gospel of God. Right? And gospel, as I'm sure most of us here know, means good news. Right? Good news. It's a declaration. Just like we saw in verse 1 of this chapter, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is primarily a message. Right? And gospel is an earth-shaking, life-changing message. Usually, whenever this word was used, as we've talked about before, it was a message of the coming of a king or the message of a victory won in a battle. Right? Again, that's the normal usage of the word back whenever Mark wrote this. That's how Mark's original audience would have understood this. A king has come, a victory of some sort has been won. And later in Christian history, it became a technical term in theology. But this is a huge message. It's an announcement that something great has happened. And our text says, this gospel is of God, meaning that this good news is from God. It's possessive. It's God's gospel. That's a sermon in and of itself. It's God's gospel, so we're not allowed to mess with it. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. But Jesus was sent by God the Father to tell people something monumental that God was doing in human history through Jesus. But the content of Jesus' gospel message is found in verse 15. And I want to make a quick note here. This is not all that Jesus ever said, right? This was not all that he ever said in his gospel preaching. Obviously, we have other things that he said recorded. 
What Mark's done here is he's given us a very concise, compacted summary of the content of everything that Jesus preached. So there's some lens for you as you read the Gospels. Everything that Jesus ever taught in some way, shape, or form fits in with the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Everything he says fits one way or another in that statement, right? So this is a summary of Jesus' message. And he says four things, and we're just going to go one at a time through the four statements that Jesus makes that, make, that, com- that comprise his message. First, he says, the time is fulfilled. Now, the word used here that we translate time is important for us to understand, right? In Greek, there are two words for time, chronos and kairos, uh, but in English, we only have one word, right? English is, is a bit handicapped whenever we translate Greek. Um, so again, chronos is a Greek word for time, and that's like clock time, right? Seconds, minutes, hours, days, things like that. And the other, kairos, means something significant, a time, right? Something with, with emphasis, And here the word used does not mean chronological time. It is not chronos. It's not time like we normally think of it. But here the word means something like era. It's that word kairos. R.C. Sproul put it this way. The closest thing that we have in English are the words history and historic. Right? Anything that happens in space and in time is part of history. Anything. But something significant Something that changes everything that comes after it, we call a historic event. Right? Think about 9-11. Literally everything changed. Right? It's a nightmare to go to airports. Security got beefed up everywhere. Right? Everything changed after September 11, 2001. That was a chirotic moment, if you'll let me get away with that. Right? It was a historic moment. So the word time here means historic. Nothing's going to be the same after this, is what Jesus is saying. Something monumental is coming to pass. In this historic moment, the time, Jesus says, is fulfilled. And this word means super full. Super full. The, the, it's a word picture almost uh, for fulfilled. Uh, the picture is like a glass being filled with water, and the water is spilling over the sides. So Jesus is saying the time that changes everything is here. It's beginning. It's not completely a thing in the future, but it's coming now. It's beginning now, and there's no going back. So we can sum that up real quick and say that Jesus is telling us that a new era has come. And indeed, it is already beginning. What he's saying is the old era of prophecy, the old era of promises is over. The Old Testament era is complete. We're now stepping into a new time. right? The time of fulfillment of prophecy has come. And really, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this. Whenever you read the Old Testament and you see the Bible as a whole, right? and I recommend this if you, if you don't really see the unity between the two Testaments, read the whole Bible as fast as you can. I'm not telling you to study it. I'm saying just get the content in your system. You can read the whole Bible in about three and a half months if you're really dedicated to get it done. And you get, begin to see this big picture forming. And part of that picture is that you begin to see that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was just this big, long time of promises it was a big time of foreshadowing of something greater that was going to come. And let me explain what I mean in one big sense how the Old Testament was this big promise covenant. We see in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, that God created the whole world 
And that mankind rebelled against God, right? You guys know the story. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And in doing so, mankind and the whole creation fell into sin and ruin and corruption. And God cursed the world and everything in it. And humanity fell under the wrath of God and under a curse, right? That's why we die. But right there in Genesis chapter 3.15, you guys probably know this one very well. Right there in Genesis 3.15 As God is giving out curses, he's cursing the serpent. He's cursing the devil who deceived Adam and Eve. And God says this to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises a savior Right there in Genesis 3.15, who's going to be born of a woman, meaning he'll be a human being, and who will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy the devil and all of his works. In other words, he's going to crush Satan and reverse the curse that God had thrown down on humanity because of their sin. But that's not the only promise. That's just the first. The promises continue. So I just want us to see a bit of a thread of promise. You can go on further in the book of Genesis and see in Genesis chapter 12, God goes to Abram who would later be named Abraham. And God promises Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. So what is he doing? He's saying that the Savior, the one who was promised in Genesis 3, is going to come through Abram's line. We go on further in the book of Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, who is a descendant of Abraham. He's in Abraham's family. He prophesies, so God inspires uh, Jacob to prophesy And he prophesies that an eternal king is going to come from the tribe of his son, Judah. We fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God comes to King David, who is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And God, God tells David that he is going to make an eternal king. And going to give an eternal kingdom to one of David's descendants. We go on further and we see in the prophetic books... In the Psalms, right, especially the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we see God describing and promising what his king is going to be like and what his kingdom is going to be like. And if I could sum it up, it's this. God promises that he is going to rule over his people through this king who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, and that his people are going to be saved from their sins and the world is going to be in perfect peace and the enemies of God, those who oppose God, are going to be utterly destroyed the promises that God will reign unopposed with his people with the promised king and savior at the head of the people in a restored and perfect new heaven and new earth you can see this toward the end of the book of Isaiah very heavily God promises to make everything like it once was in the garden of Eden and to accomplish this through the savior that he promised in Genesis 3 So I know we just did a big sweep of the Old Testament and skipped over a lot, but you guys can see what I'm saying. It's a big covenant of promise. The Old Testament and all of its promises, all of its covenants, all of its prophets, they're continually promising and promising that God is going to do all of the things that we just talked about. But again, to sum it up, God's promised a great king and savior to his people, and he's promised to save them by this king, also called the Messiah. And Jesus now comes to the Jewish people who are familiar with these covenants, who are familiar with these promises, and he says, the time of promise is over. Think about how monumental of a moment that this is. 
Jesus says the time of promise is over. You're now living in the time of promise fulfillment. God is now acting to bring to pass everything he's ever promised to his people, and nothing's going to be the same now. The plan of God is coming to fruition, and Jesus Christ is at the center of all of it. That's what he's saying. I've come to proclaim to you good news. God is finally doing what he's been promising since Genesis 3, and I'm the one who's come to usher in those promises. As Paul says in one of his letters to the Corinthians, I believe 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises are finding their yes and amen in Jesus. He could proclaim that the time of waiting is over because he is the one bringing it in, the age of fulfillment. And Jesus describes this time of fulfillment in one phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And to just keep it honest with you guys, we come to the most difficult phrase in Christ's message. Uh, arguably one of the most difficult phrases in the entire Bible. Uh, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Right, there are books, there are 700 page tomes written explaining what is the kingdom of God. But what makes this difficult for us is that Jesus never explicitly defines what he's talking about whenever he says the kingdom of God, right? And that makes it a little bit frustrating for us, uh, 2,000 years removed from that and not nearly as well acquainted with our Old Testaments. But Jesus never felt the need to define what the kingdom of God was, or rather is. He never felt the need to define it. Because the majority of his Jewish hearers in that day already understood the basic idea of what he was talking about. They already knew. It would be like me trying to explain to you guys what America is for a half hour. right? You guys already know what it is. You don't need me to tell you what America is. That's how the kingdom of God was to Jesus' initial hearers. So the kingdom of God is a concept found throughout the whole Bible. It's mentioned, I think, don't shoot me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 160 times in the New Testament. But here's the kicker. It's not mentioned by name at all in the Old Testament. The phrase kingdom of God is not used one time in the Old Testament. But I want to encourage you, that doesn't mean that the idea is not there. Just like the word Trinity is not found in the New Testament, but yet we know that God is triune. Right? The idea is there. The concept is there. And here's the simplest definition that I have found for the kingdom of God. And I stole this from Dr. Joel Beakey, if you guys want to check him out. Um, B-E-E-K-E, -E, Joel Beakey. He put it this way, the kingdom of God is God's reign over his people through his Messiah, wherein his people are saved and all of his and their enemies are destroyed. Those enemies being those who are outside of that kingdom. I'll repeat that one more time. The kingdom of God is God's reign over his people through his Messiah, wherein his people are saved, and all of his and their enemies are destroyed. One passage that we can see a bit of this in, just so you guys know that I'm not just up here blowing smoke, is in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. I'll read this to you, and we'll stop and go through all the verses. Verse 7 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings gospel, who publishes peace. So he speaks peace to God's people. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. 
who says to Zion, who says to God's people, your God reigns. This is the core of the good news that Jesus preached, right? This is the gospel of the kingdom of God. In one phrase, your God reigns. This is what Jesus is proclaiming. Your God reigns. He's proclaiming a coming day of peace and salvation where God reigns uncontested over his people. And if he's going to reign uncontested and his people are going to dwell in peace and salvation, then that must imply that his enemies will be completely subdued. They will be completely crushed under his feet. Verse 8 of Isaiah 52. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh, I mean the Lord, God. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. So this tells us that part of this good news is that God is coming directly to his people in order to bring these things to pass. He is coming himself to establish his reign among his people. God's taking his people and giving them victory. In verse 9 Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Isaiah says God has redeemed his people. He's bought them back from their enemies. He saved them from everything that would ever harm them. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 52, the Lord, Yahweh, has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Here Isaiah prophesies that God will display his power in saving his people. He'll display his power. He'll show his holy arm and the whole world will see it. What does that mean? This message, your God reigns, this kingdom that is coming is a decisive victory. The whole world will see as we're going to sing later, the world will know the righteousness of our incarnate God. Again, God triumphs over the enemies of his people to save his own. This is what Isaiah promises, or rather what God promises through the prophet Isaiah. And how is God going to bring all of this to pass? Part of our definition of the kingdom of God is that God would do all of this and reign over his people through the Messiah. Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 15 Behold, my servant. In Isaiah, that's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, meaning he'll be successful. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. God is going to accomplish all of this that he's just promised through his servant, the Messiah. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings, so the rulers of the earth and those under them, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, the Messiah. For that which has not been told, had not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So though he will be marred, the servant will be marred and suffer in order to save his people. Who does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Nevertheless, the Messiah will eventually be esteemed over the kings of the earth. Why do I say that? Because Isaiah tells us the kings shut their mouths before him. Why? Because he is their king. Dare I say it, he is the king of kings. 
this Messiah will rule over the world. So again, the kingdom of God is God's reigning over his people directly and saving them and destroying all of his and their enemies. And he does this through his Messiah, through his anointed one, through his Christ. And his Messiah is king of his people. His Messiah is the means by which God does and accomplishes all of this work. Jesus is telling them that the long-awaited messianic rule, the long-awaited king, the promise to David who would have an eternal throne is now here. Now is the time. The long-expected king who will save God's people has come. And Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. This means spatially near, at hand. Spatially near. Like the pulpit. It's near to my hand, right? It's right next to me. What Jesus is saying, and is that he ties himself directly to the kingdom. He's saying, the kingdom is right in front of you. That's what he's preaching. You can read in another gospel, he says, the kingdom of God is among you. Why does he say that? Does that mean it's in your heart like some weird mystical thing? No, he's saying, I'm here and I'm among you, so the kingdom of God is among you. He directly links himself to the kingdom. And why could he do that? Well, he could say that because he is the king of the kingdom. And if the king is here, so is the kingdom. That's what he's saying. Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom spreads. This is wild. Jesus is point blank declaring to those who would hear him, I am your king. I am your king. I am the great hope that God has promised. I am the one who will save God's people from their sins. Again, read Isaiah 53. We, we stopped just short of starting Isaiah 53 of how the Messiah was going to save God's people and how he was going to establish his rule over God's people. And it was through suffering and being crushed by God for their sins. Jesus says, I am the one who's going to save you and I am the one who's going to smash the enemies of God to pieces. I am the king of the kingdom. Now, when the Jews of Jesus' day heard that the kingdom had come, they had a certain expectation of what that meant, right? They thought that the kingdom of God would be a physical, political nation with a king sitting on a throne in the earthly city of Jerusalem with a literal army. They thought that the Messiah, they thought that the king would come and end the oppression of the Roman Empire, right? They were basically living, the Jews of that day were living with Rome, having their boot on the necks of the Jewish people, they thought that when the Messiah comes, he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel with military might and end the Roman oppression. Right? You've got to keep in mind, Israel hadn't been a kingdom since, since their exile about 600 years before then. But the Jews of Jesus' day were thinking only in earthly, temporal terms about the kingdom of God. They weren't thinking about anything spiritual. And what they had done is that they had blinded by what they wanted God to do. They had misinterpreted their own scriptures. Blinded by their desire for earthly goods, they had misinterpreted the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. They had misinterpreted the Old Testament by ignoring different passages that spoke of the Messiah bringing in an era of righteousness in his people and forgiveness of their sins. Passages that talked about a new covenant where God would bring in Gentiles from all over the world, including the Roman Empire, to be saved by the Messiah. They ignored passages that talk about God's people serving him gladly with a renewed spirit and heartfelt obedience. They ignored passages that taught that the Messiah would first have to suffer God's wrath for their sins in order to purchase their forgiveness and make their entry into the kingdom possible. 
they ignored how spiritual the kingdom of God would be. Jesus, at that time, has come to save the people of God, but not from any earthly power. Not yet. Not yet. Jesus has come to save them from their sins. He's come to, to take their sins on himself and be punished in their place so that they can be forgiven. He's come to establish a throne, yes, but he's come to establish a throne in the hearts of his people by giving them new hearts and desires that he might reign in them. He's come to establish a kingdom, yes, but Jesus tells us out of his own mouth his kingdom is not of this world. He's come to establish a spiritual kingdom that consists of righteousness and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. Now, I want to be clear Jesus said that his kingdom was at hand. It means it's here. The time is fulfilled. It's flowing over. The time is beginning now. But that doesn't mean that it is completely here in all of its fullness. Okay? I want to be clear about that. His kingdom has not come in all of its fullness. Something that Jesus teaches throughout his life is that the kingdom of God comes in two stages. In, in his first coming, the Lord Jesus inaugurated or established his kingdom. He founded his church. He establishes his kingdom. And in his second coming, he will come and consummate his kingdom, meaning he will bring it completely. You've probably heard the phrase, if you've ever heard anyone preach or teach about the kingdom of God, already but not yet. You ever heard that phrase? The kingdom of God is already and not yet. That's what we're talking about now, already and not yet. Christ's kingdom began breaking into the world when he came in his first coming. Christ's reign is established in the hearts of his people. Is it not? Who can deny this? Christ's reign is established here among us in his church, right? In the hearts of his people. The enemies of God, our spiritual enemies, sin, Satan, and death, have been conquered. How? By Christ's life, death, and resurrection on behalf of his people to save them from sin, Satan, and eternal death. Evil is currently being conquered in his people. How? As we grow in our sanctification, as we mortify sin, as we kill sin and grow to be more like Jesus, evil is being subdued in Christ's kingdom. His people are caring for the needs of one another in this kingdom that we live in right now. God rules his people by his word, and the king, Jesus, is enjoyed and praised by his subjects. The spiritual stage of the kingdom began when Christ came. Again, Christ rules in the hearts of his people. The church is that spiritual kingdom. But there's also coming a day of complete fulfillment. Amen? This is our blessed hope. Is it not? There's coming a day of complete fulfillment. This is why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. We recognize it's here, but it's not completely here. There's a day of full fulfillment. At Christ's return... And there will be a return. He will act decisively to physically and spiritually remove all evil from the earth. He will decisively destroy all those who oppose him. Those who refuse to be part of his kingdom. Those who will not, or those who will not submit to him as king will be cast into hell. And sin will be gone from the lives of his people and from the earth and they will live, his people will live in perfect righteousness and there will be a recreated heaven and a recreated earth where God will dwell with his people for eternity. We just sang a song about that a few minutes ago. He will dwell with his people. 
The kingdom of God will come in its fullness. God's people will be saved. God's enemies, unbelievers, will be destroyed. And God's Christ, his Messiah, will rule his people and be enjoyed supremely by them for eternity. That's good news. That's good news. So if I could summarize Jesus' message. God's kingdom is being established spiritually right now. It will one day be established fully. The kingdom has come, and it is coming, and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And in light of this kingdom's establishment and future full realization, the Lord Jesus preaches something else. He says, repent. Repent. But why would he say that? Why would Jesus give this good news? He just announced such good news about what God is doing for his people. Why would he now call people to repent? What Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is coming, the reign of God is established, and you are not ready for it. That's what he's telling the people as he preaches to them. You're not ready. You're not a citizen of this kingdom. You're not a subject of the king. You could look at it this way. Jesus is saying to them, you live contrary to the laws of my kingdom. You don't live as a citizen of my kingdom. Furthermore, you don't submit to me as king. Therefore, if you're to join my kingdom, you must repent. This is what he's telling us. But what is repentance? Repentance is a radical change of mind. Listen, even if you're a Christian, listen to this. You need to hear this as much as anyone else. Repentance is a radical change of mind. It's a turning away from sin. Jesus is saying that if we're to join this kingdom and avoid the wrath of God and enjoy God for eternity and have life forever, then we must turn from our sin. We must agree with God that we're sinners, that we've broken the laws of the kingdom, right? God's law, that we've lived contrary to the ethics of the kingdom, and that we've not honored the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Repentance is turning from sin. It's a hatred of how we've been living, since how we've been living is contrary to what God commands. I cannot stress this enough. Please listen to me. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for what you've done. Paul tells us worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repenting of your sin is not just being sorry for what you've done. It's actually turning away from it. The, that concept of turning away is built into the word repent. Repentance is a conviction that you've offended God and an earnest desire to be reconciled to him. It's a desire to not live the way that you've been living, but to be changed into a person that pleases the Lord. Repentance is not just a vague feeling. It's turning from sin. It's hating sin, accompanied by sorrow for having offended the holy God who made you. And it's also changing your mind about who Jesus is. No longer looking at Jesus as just a common man or as some kind of a hippie mystic who taught some good ethical principles that are handy to know. It's recognizing that Jesus is the king. 
And that you desperately need to be granted entrance into the kingdom of God by him. Because no one comes into the kingdom, no one becomes a subject of the kingdom unless the king grants them citizenship. It's a recognition that apart from Christ the king, you will forever be outside the kingdom and under the wrath of God for your lawlessness. It's a recognition that there is salvation through no one other than Christ the king. It is he who must forgive you for your sins. And repentance is a submission to Christ as the king. It's to recognize his full authority over everything. Every facet of your life belongs to him now. It's to turn from your rebellion against the king and submit yourself to his lordship. But Jesus doesn't just call people to turn from their sin. He doesn't just call people to turn from their rebellion in order to join the kingdom. If they're going to turn away from the way they've been going, then they are going to turn toward something else. So Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. We must believe that Christ is the king. Again, I know I've covered that a bit. But when he says believe in the gospel, he's saying that we must believe that he has made a way for us to join his kingdom. Before Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus was proclaiming this. I am the way to enter the kingdom. Believe in me. Believe that I will make the way. Trust me. Watch the promises of God unfold before your very eyes. I will grant you the forgiveness of sins. Trust me that I will do it. And now, since Christ has lived, lived, died, and been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, we proclaim this same gospel, but from a different perspective. Do we not? Repent and believe. We now proclaim, believe on Christ's life, death, and resurrection in your place and enter the kingdom of God. Believe the gospel that Jesus lived the life that God demands you to live, which is a life of perfect obedience, and that Jesus suffered the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins and died in your place as a substitute, and that God raised him from the dead on the third day as proof that Christ sacrificed for sin paid for your sin. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have free and full forgiveness of your sins. Throw yourself upon the mercy of this king and he will grant you forgiveness. Jesus says, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. Believe the gospel, says Jesus, and you will become a citizen of this kingdom. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. The message of a kingdom is not good news by itself. The message of a kingdom coming is not good news to sinners if there is no way to join the kingdom. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, a way has been made for sinners to be forgiven and join the kingdom. The king Jesus, by his own sacrifice, has granted amnesty to those who once lived in rebellion against him. But he demands that in order to join the kingdom, we turn from our sin, submit to him as king, and believe that we are only granted entrance to the kingdom because of what he has done for us in our place. This is the best news that anyone could ever hear. 
There is a kingdom with a king. The kingdom is coming. Evil will be swept away, and all the unrighteous will suffer condemnation. But the citizens of the kingdom will be saved, and they'll live in perfection with their God and king for all eternity in worship and glory, and you can join the kingdom. This is the best news you've ever heard. The king is merciful. And though you yourself are unrighteous, he has made a way for you to be forgiven and made righteous if you will turn from your sin and trust that he has done it. That is the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was his theme. And this is good news. This is the gospel. And I want to ask you two questions by way of application this evening. And the first is this. Have you repented and believed in the gospel? If we have visitors here, I must ask, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? And I must ask this, not that I'm accusing any of you, because I know most of you here are members of our church. If we have false converts among us who are putting on a front, I must ask, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Or are you a person who just wants a little religion in your life? Listen to me. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. To become a citizen of the kingdom of God, Christ must become your whole life. You don't add a little bit of Jesus to your life. You come to him in repentance and faith and throw yourself upon his mercy so that you can enter his kingdom. You don't add a little bit of Jesus to your life. You submit all of who you are to his kingship and lordship over you. You acknowledge that Christ is Lord of all, that his word is law, that he must be obeyed because he is worthy of all your obedience. You don't add a little religion to your life. You love the Lord Jesus and you give everything over to him. You must love him more than you love anything or anyone else or you're not worthy to follow him and you cannot join the kingdom. Have you repented? Have you repented? Have you forsaken your sins? Have you turned from your life of rebellion against God? Have you changed your mind about who you are? Knowing that you're not a good person. You're a rebel against the king. You're a sinner. Have you changed your mind about who Jesus is? That he is the king of glory that you desperately need? And have you believed? Have you thrown yourself on the mercy of God found in his son, the Lord Jesus, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for your right standing with God and not anything that you do? If you haven't, then please, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, enter the kingdom, and live. The gates of the kingdom of God are thrown open wide to all those who will repent and believe in the gospel. All of them all of those who will believe, but they are shut closed hard against any who refuse the king and only savior, the Lord Jesus. And outside the kingdom, there is only the wrath of God. My second question, Christian, I'm talking to believers. Are you repenting and believing? The tense of these words in Greek mean repent and keep repenting. Believe and keep believing. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. 
It's not just something that we do once and then never, never again. So let me ask you this, a very personal question. May God search your heart in this. When is the last time that you repented of known sin? When is the last time you looked at your life and said, this does not honor my God as holy and I must forsake it for the sake of his glory and my good? When is the last time that you've actually repented? When is the last time that you threw yourself on Christ and really recognized that he's the only hope that you have for salvation? Or have you become arrogant and thought, I do this, I do that, I read the scriptures, I know theology, I come to a sound church, we take the supper, that's why I'm saved. Or have you thrown yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ? It's so easy for us to go on some kind of spiritual autopilot and not really live as citizens of the kingdom. But those who belong to Christ are constantly turning from sin and constantly trusting in Christ's work for their right standing with God. So Christians, this message of repent and believe in the gospel is every bit as much for us as it is for the unbeliever. Are you holding on to any kind of sin? I don't care what it is. Are you entertaining yourself with godless things? Is your speech godless? Have you been given over to drunkenness? Do you hate somebody? Are you not taking care of your kids and teaching them? Whatever it might be. Are you holding some kind of sin? And listen, maybe you think it's a small sin. But in reality, there is no such thing as a small sin. If it's such a small sin, why don't you forsake it? Don't lose your soul over something stupid, Christian. Repent and renew your faith in the Lord Jesus. Don't autopilot. Constantly strive to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and the kingdom that you've been brought into. And I want to encourage you that our Lord is merciful and promises always to forgive his people. So keep looking to him with confident expectation that he loves you and will forgive you. Always be repenting. Always be believing in closing, Christ's gospel is a simple message. There is a kingdom that is established, and it is coming more fully. Those in the kingdom will be saved and live with God forever. Those outside the kingdom will perish. Christ is the king of the kingdom, and he has made a way for sinners to join the kingdom by faith in him. Repent and believe the good news of this kingdom and its king and live. Amen. Praise God. Long live the King. Let's pray. God, you have been so kind to us to invite worthless sinners like us into your kingdom through your Son. God, we come before you in humble recognition that we don't deserve any part in your kingdom, but you have been so, so gracious to us to tell us, come in, you'll wash us, you'll make us clean, you'll make us fit citizens of the kingdom, and you will graciously teach us day by day how to live in accord with the ethics of your kingdom. Thank you for your mercy found in the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that if there are any believers here who are harboring some kind of sin, no matter how small they might think it is, that they would forsake it because the Lord Jesus demands that we repent. Lord, if there are any weary believers among us 
who have forgotten the goodness of the free grace of the gospel, I pray that they would throw themselves upon your mercy found in Christ and renew their faith and say, not by my works, but by what Christ has done. And Lord, if there are unbelievers among us, whether they be visiting or false converts, Lord, I pray that you would regenerate their hearts and let them see the good news of the kingdom. Let them see their sin. Let them see their need for Christ. And please grant them faith that they might turn from their sin and trust wholly in the King who saves sinners. I pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.